Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to the Lonely Cello Podcast. I'm Emily Wright, and I am here with... Dennis Hidon. I believe that is Dr. Dennis Hidon, is, if I heard the rumors correctly. Almost. I'm a few weeks away from it. I have one uh, project left to finish the degree, so I'm almost there. Okay, so Mr. Mr. Hidon for now. Or Master, you can, you know, I mean, that sounds right. Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a master's degree. Why don't they say master even, right? That would be. I know I have a master's degree too. And I just feel like if the more people know that, the more they know that I paid for a degree that doesn't get you gigs. Uh, I, I don't, I don't tell people about it. They're like, ha ha, look at you. <laughs> um, so uh, how do we know each other? Let's start off with that. We met back when we were at Cal State University, Northridge in the late 1990s. Um, I arrived there, in, uh, I transferred there in 1997. It was my second year of college, um, was my first year at CSUN. And then um, what was your emphasis there? What was your major technically? Uh, performance, trombone, so classical trombone, you know, but I did everything. I mean, I, I played in every single ensemble that was available to me. And I created some when there weren't. Oh, nice. Tell me, tell me about one of the ensembles you created. Well, uh, uh, for example, there was no trombone choir. It, it, it never, the teacher never quite could get it to happen. And, and I started it. I, I basically started it and, and invited students from, from other schools. And so I became the conductor of the trombone choir. And then um, I also started the brass, uh, the brass ensemble, which was like the premier brass group um, were, you know, the top brass students of, of, of the department were playing, you know, and what I heard later after I graduated was that it actually be, en ended up becoming the dustbin of the brass department where you threw everybody that couldn't play. So it totally reversed its role after I left, unfortunately. But point is, is I created ensembles because, you know, I wanted to play and those, they, those ensembles didn't exist. Yeah, that's the dustbin. Also, the makes it sounds much more elegant. It was the dustbin, wasn't the trash can. Well, those, are the <laughs> thing, those, those are the things you learn when you study, you know, doctorate degree level. You know. That's right. That is, yeah, I know. Like, what did you learn as a master's degree? Well, you have to parrot what the advisor says for your uh, <laughs> dissertation, number one. Right. Um, so, um, where, like, tell me a little bit about your journey in music did you start on some other instrument kind of what you know what made you sure, uh, sure. take trombone and then um uh what was your journey uh up till cal state northridge so fifth grade elementary school field trip to go here los angeles for harmonic and just going "Ooh, i want to play an instrument and that was it you know that was just like the thought i had and i always liked music i think like most humans <laughs> you know but i remember that that memory vividly that just like okay I need to play an instrument so fast forward uh my dad or soon after that joined the the U.S. Navy and we moved up to uh Alameda California which is next to uh San Francisco and Oakland and so um fast forward there seventh grade right seventh yeah seventh grade 
you know, they come around. Who wants to be in band? I want to be in band. So I go to band. Well, what do you want to play? I want to play tenor sax. Oh, we don't have enough of those. Okay, I want to play trumpet. We don't have enough of those. I want to play drums. We don't have enough. French horn, we don't have. What do you have? We have trombones. Okay, I'll play trombone. And that's it. So <laughs> other kids got tenor sax. So <laughs> I think the teacher just, I was always one of the big kids growing up, you know, until like senior year uh, <laughs> when everybody else caught up. Um, so I think the teacher just saw a big kid that could hold the instrument that had, you know, full lips and said, trombone player. <laughs> I got a cello because I was tall. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, well, you know, also they gave me a full size cello. And mm -hmm. so I, I was taking it like back and forth to school in like fourth grade. And it was just like waltzing with this giant monster <laughs> back and forth to school. Um, did you go to, were you Hamilton, Loxa? Where did you no, go to school? No, I went to Loxa, Loxa, LA County High School for the Arts. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't sleep on um, arts intensive, like high schools. They tend to mint out some extraordinary people. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those schools have turned out some really fantastic musicians, uh, you know, that end up being fantastic musicians that are, you know, working all over the place. So, um, so there's always a moment where it's like, you probably got moderately good at the instrument and, you know, you're taking lessons and you're enjoying things. And then there's kind of this tipping point where you start seeing college like off in the horizon and you're like, Hmm, what to do. And your parents, at least my parents were like, not music, not music, not music. <laughs> <laughs> like do something else. Um, and, um, but, but by the time I'd gotten through high school, like it was only going to be music. It was never going to be anything else, not even close. So like, when did that point happen? Was there like a conversation you remember, or was it just like, this is what's going to happen? So trombone was just something that I did because it was fun. You know, and it just captured my energy, my imagination. It was fun, and I, 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 I didn't even have the, 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 the concept of it being a, a career. Just it was, you know, I, I didn't know any musicians that work as musicians. You know, right. I had one cousin who was like a garage band kind of guitar player. Right, that's it. That was my 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 exposure to to musicians. So, um, um, I, I had a, actually and. Probably because growing up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, being in the Cold War and then in addition, having my dad uh, join the Navy, I thought I was going to go to the Navy and I really wanted to be a fighter pilot like every young boy that saw Top Gun. Me you know? too. I totally want. I was like, I'm going to fly F4s off of carriers. Right, that is my exactly. destiny. Or I'll be on a submarine. One of those two. Both not open to women, by the way. But, you know, what yeah, else? Yeah. Not back then. Yeah. Um, so... I actually applied to go to the Naval Academy because I wanted to be an officer. I'm not going to be some enlistee, you know? Mm -hmm. So to go to the, uh, so I actually went to their summer seminar where you actually go and live there for a week and you sort of get a taste of what it's like. They can't treat you completely like, uh, you know. Uh, like grunts. Yeah, but you do, there is actually one night where you can volunteer and they go, okay, you know, you know, we're actually going to put you through some stuff now. So <laughs> it's interesting. Um, so, yeah, I did that and I was all gung-ho about it. And the thing is, to get to Naval Academy, it's pretty competitive, it um, especially in a place like Los Angeles that has a, a big population. You have to get nominated to go. Uh, you can get a presidential nomination, you know. Congress, I think. Yeah. yeah, all kinds of stuff. So I was going through that process to get um, like a, con a, con uh, a, a con congressional nomination. Um, 
and I was all into it. I was gonna, and I was gonna study either linguistics or engineering. And um, and I started asking questions. But what about your music department? Well, we have like a drum and bugle corps, you know. That's it. But there's no music major, you know. And that was also during the time when I sort of started um, studying more uh, about religion and morality and mm -hmm. kind of being more conscious about that. And I realized, well, to be honest with you, there's no music. So that's a big minus, you know. I'm, I never went in, into marching band. My high school didn't have one. So that, that was one. And then I was like, you know, do I really want to be part of an organization whose job it is is to kill other people, whether it's whether it's 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 um, justified or not. That's a whole other conversation. But the job is you kill people, right. even if you're sitting at the desk, you're part of the machinery that does that. Right. You're part of the thing that fires the shot. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Right. So that was a big kind of eye opener. I was like, you know what? Nah, I think I'll go. I think I'll go play trombone. <laughs> so that's that's why I went to college for trombone. Literally, that was it. I was like, well, what else is cool? Trombone's cool. Let's go do that. Little so. did you know that actually the career as a trombonist also involves killing people. You'd never <laughs> expect that, but it's mostly like God. Violist. mostly violist, but yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, so um, there. So you you did consider engineering. You considered. Um, these kind of other things, was that just because these were um, fields that interested you or these things that you had proclivities for like beforehand? What if you didn't go, what if you hadn't applied like to, to be in the Navy? Were there any other things that were like super interesting to you or things that you are still interested in? Um, I think that it, a lot of it had to do with um, influence from my, from my dad, you know, um, him wanting me to be a professional. I mean, look, they came here as undocumented immigrants, you know, so they want their kids to have a much better life than, than they had, right? That's right? So they're looking at professions that will give me the life that they couldn't have, right? Um, so what is that? Doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so it's not that I didn't like those kinds of subjects, but maybe it wasn't so intrinsic. Maybe it was like put, the seed was put in my head and, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Let's go do that. No, I don't want to you know, uh, cut lawns for a living, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, which my is dad, funny because now I think a lot of us, at least my, the musician friends that I know, one of our favorite things to do is like spend a day outside working in the yard. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's just one yard. <laughs> that is just one yard. That is correct. Exactly. And you can, and you can have a beer while you're doing it. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so, um, so he, uh, so I think it was partially, mostly that, um, but I mean, yeah, I was interested. I was always in the gifted classes, you know, growing up and all that stuff. So, so I was a good student with a good, you know, aptitude for learning and, and, and all that. But um, did I love those things? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, it's always funny how our school system is like purposely super broad. And then you see, because I've I have like three, I call them cello daughters. So they're girls who I taught from like the age of like seven or eight all the way through high school. So I got to see like this amazing kind of flowering and, you know, choosing directions. And, but all of them, when they got to their senior year, their eyes just got big because they're like, wait, well, I'm supposed to have a thing. And it's like, <laughs> I, I almost feel like unless you have something where you're just very sure, even I, I think, even though I was on fire for the cello, would have benefited from the first semester being like, 
Here's a broad survey of things that are available in the world. Here is how to be a better student. Cause I don't know about you, but I got my butt kicked the first semester, just managing my own time. Like, oh yeah, that was a huge, super steep learning curve. Super steep learning curve. Yeah. So I always like, um, I think I was really fortunate that at least I had this thing that I loved to have my life like centered around, even as I was just completely obtuse and an absolute fetus and like, like just, I had no exposure to the world at large at all. So, um, so when you started at CSUN and I'm so glad that I've got a bunch of CSUN people on this simply because like, I feel like we're the rebel faction in LA, I remember being super bummed that I didn't get a full scholarship to USC because prestige, I come from a family where like Ivy League matters and those kind of things, like the, the prestige is really super important. And I was led to believe it was very important. And so in some circles, I suppose it is. But um, the fact that our instructors, once I learned who they were, like these people are they're writing jingles for commercials. They are working um, engineers all the time. They are playing in the studio music scene. Like they're playing in the LA Feller, the LA Chamber Orchestra. And it's like, shame on me for having like thought, oh man, I'm going to CSUN. Like, I cannot believe how lucky I got. It's, it was a better place for me than USC would have been. See, I didn't have that experience because my parents, you know, they didn't, they didn't have an American college experience. Right. You know, my, my mom never went to school in this country. And my dad actually was the first person in the whole family to graduate uh, high school. Um, and the next person to graduate high school was me. <laughs> so, so you were free of the, the baggage though. And also like white people carry baggage, like no other good grief. Is it just so toxic? <laughs> Well, I mean, you could look at it as, 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 as not carrying baggage, but I also then had no guidance, mm. not because they weren't interested, but they just, you know, they just didn't know it right. wasn't part of their world. Um, I mean, my dad was in community college for a long time, you know, but I mean, that's just, that's one very small piece of the, of the puzzle, right? He couldn't lead me along this, this, this way of, mm -hmm. of higher education. So, um, so yeah, I didn't have the baggage, but I didn't have the, 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 the the guidance either and so like I remember towards the very end of high school so LAXA is on the campus of Cal State LA right and I was playing in a and in a lot of the all of the Cal State LA ensembles which was great for me you know being a, a good high school player still playing with like a not so good college you know ensemble it's still better than a high school ensemble that's right um and 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 just kind of like it dawning on me when when I decided not to do the Navy and talking to the professors there and they're like and I was like, hey, I've heard of this school called Juilliard. Is it good? You know, could I go there? There's another school I heard of called Eastman, you know, and 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 uh, and they're like, oh, you could get in for sure, but the deadlines have passed and that are you're good enough to do these things. Just so you know, I missed my chance to get in there as a freshman. I eventually actually got into Eastman, but I didn't go because, you know, at that point it was my second or third year and blah, blah, right, blah. Right, right. You know, and then my private teachers that I got through Cal State LA top call studio guy but right. but you know again I mean he was already an old fogey then he grew up mm -hmm. in like the big band age you right. know didn't go through higher education you know he learned on stage you know so he also couldn't guide me guide me through that I didn't get to do competitions because that just wasn't his world he was too right. busy gigging you yeah. know 
and he was an amazing teacher, but he, you know, those um, uh, orthodox channels that in, in, in the pedagogical world, you know, it just, I didn't have those people to guide me through there. So I, you know, on my resume, I don't have a bunch of competitions that I could have won or the prestigious school that I went to. So for me, it was like, oh, Cal State LA is the natural thing to go to. And I was like, oh, hey, but my friend Chad, who I went to high school with. Chad Bloom. Yeah. He went to CSUN and I went to go check out the ensemble. Oh, they sound better. Maybe I should go to that school. And that was it. I'm so glad you did. Also, this story is really good because most of the people who are listening uh, to this podcast are people who are coming to whatever instrument they play later in life. And so they are by definition unorthodox. And I don't know about the brass world, but because I know like embouchures develop over time and some instruments are better if you started a little later because your your mouth and your face changes shape so much over time. But I was considered a late starter and I started at age nine eight and a half or nine, right? Yeah. Because like we see these like wunderkind, right? Four years old and they're already blasting through Mozart and charity and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's great to just continually reinforce the message that it, it, there are lots of different channels into making music the beating heart of your life. And it doesn't even mean that you have to be a professional because some of these people who listen are, for instance, retired or they're kind of working part-time at like kind of the end of a very high performing career. Um, just get as long as, if you found this podcast, you are in the right place. You are among <laughs> friends. <laughs> you know, along those, along those lines, one of my pet peeves is, is when a non-musician says, oh, you're so lucky you play music. I always wanted to play instrument X, you know, but oh, well, like, what do you mean, oh, well, are you? You're dead? alive. Yeah, pick it up, go start, <laughs> you, you know, you can still have a body, go do it, you know, and and yeah, I've heard that comment a, a lot. And, and and I really, every time I hear that, I try to encourage them, it's like, hey, do it, just do it. Are you going to be, you know, yo-yo mom? Mm, probably not, but are you going to have fun? Yeah, you're going to have fun. And also, I'm a professional cellist and I am not Yo-Yo Ma and I am doing just fine. You don't right. need those last 5% of virtuosic perfection right. to have music like soup, perform at a very high level and, and to make it meaningful. So yes. I feel like when, when we were at CSUN, we didn't, I certainly didn't realize that it was like the tail end of the golden age of working musicians like I really was like gosh look at all these ensembles especially American orchestras were really starting to come into their own when I was a kid it was all about like Concertgebouw and Vienna and Berlin and then when we were in college I remember it was all about Chicago Brass Boston you know Seiji Ozawa Michael Tilson Thomas up north and then LA fell as soon as Asapekka Salonen got there it was like oh damn like right we're gonna really be like a a, a meaningful player. And then of course the studio scene, which is what my teacher kept trying to like horn me into. He's like, if you want to make money, if you want to work, but not to death, this is what you need to do. So like when you started there, at least when I started there, that's how I kind of imagined. I imagined that I was going to turn into my teacher. So I would have some kind of smaller private studio at a smaller school. I knew I was never going to be a Juilliard person, but that's just not me. Um, and then I imagined I'd be playing uh, as an alternate in an orchestra, and then I'd be playing in the studios. What did you imagine your career arc 
um, maybe if you didn't have that conception at the beginning of school, as you saw your career kind of forming over the, the time you were there, what do you think it was going to be like? Well, I, like you, I was completely convinced that I was just going to carry on like my, all my teachers were, you know, cause my first three teachers, you know, were all heavy duty studio guys, yep. you know? Um, my, so I just assumed, yeah. And I mean, even having conversations with them, I remember, you know, oh, you should learn how to double cause that's really important to students. Okay. And that's when I learned how to start doubling. Right. Um, so I was completely convinced that that's, that's, that's what I was going to do. Would you tell, because um, we have a lot of string players, what is doubling? So doubling means that you play multiple instruments, usually within the same family. So for example, a trombone, if you're a tenor trombonist, you also play bass trombone. You also play euphonium. Those are the two like uh, most common doubles for, for, for trombone. Um, if you're a trumpet player, you know, you play b flat trumpet c trumpet d trumpet you play piccolo trumpet flugelhorn yeah right exactly so i now i play more than those instruments but those are the, the some of the typical double string players typically don't double yeah maybe maybe some viola violin crossover but not too, yeah. and but let's have to have just a moment of silence for those poor clarinet players who are expected to have like the entire wind section. I know people who are like messing around with oboe. They got to know flute, piccolo, B flat, E flat. Oh my God. That yeah, is, yeah, yeah. but you know what serves them right because their instruments are cheap compared to ours. So they make up for it by having to buy 17 of them. They're not cheaper than, they're not cheaper than brass instruments. Brass are the cheapest. Um, really? So, um, can we, can we talk Turkey? Like I know when, when we were in school, like a con 8D horn was like, what, seven, $8,000 if it was like the highest, scariest one. Yeah. 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 Things have changed since then. It's been a while. <laughs> so the most expensive ones are tuba and French horn. Makes sense. So those are the two most expensive ones. They're the curviest and they require the most, you know, material, right? Yep. I mean, the material is not really that expensive. It's more of the workmanship. That's the expensive part. Yeah, and the um, French horn is so finicky. You do not want anything left to chance. That, that instrument right. is such a battle. Right, right, right. So trombones are actually the cheapest of all of them. <gasps> you lucky duck. I know, right? Which is why I have like nine of them right here. <laughs> yeah, um, you guys should see it. Yeah, it looks like looks like somebody just opened a box of paper clips and just threw them all over the place. <laughs> you know, in France, actually, that's what... Trombone. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, um, um, linguistically informed. <laughs> so trombones, what I, what I would have... I paid, I remember buying my first symphonic tenor in 1995, brand spanking new for 1200 bucks, which was still under list price, but that was brand spanking new, 1200 bucks. That same trombone now, uh, which by the way, I'm now an artist of that company, the Con Selmer uh, uh, company, I'm a Bach artist. Nice. Uh, that same trombone costs now something like 4,500. That was, I was going to guess somewhere starting with a four. So, it's, so yeah, it's not, none of, none of it is cheap. Actually, none of us escape those poor bassoon players, man. They also have like a really expensive journey. Like they cost yeah. violin prices. So, yeah. So you kind of started thinking, yeah, I would be, you know, you teach some, you'd probably play in the studio some, maybe you'd audition. Like I remember taking a bunch of like orchestral auditions. I didn't mostly know for that was the thing. I did it for experience mostly because I knew I wasn't going to get the jobs. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know you had to audition to get into an orchestra. I mean, the only auditions I had taken to that point were just either school auditions or, or like honor band auditions, you know, mm -hmm. 
It's more I like did, for placement than for admittance. Right, yeah. exactly. So I, I had no idea that, you know, you had to do this arduous audition process to get into the LA film. So that wasn't even on my radar because I was going to be a studio guy. Yeah, why not? Exactly. That's what I thought. Yeah. So it, it's funny you asked this question because my, my focus shifted completely after I left CSUN um, towards the orchestral side. And I feel like, like you were, say you were a late bloomer with, with yours when I feel like I was a way late bloomer when it came to, to um, audition prep. I think maybe, to be honest, I was doing the auditions, but I wasn't very well prepared, to be honest. I, I kind of went out there and I was twisting in the wind. I didn't have a teacher and my, I had three three or four different teachers at Northridge because like there was just high attrition and um, it was, it was like really chaotic. So I didn't have like a mentorship relationship with anybody. Although David Axe did me right. He did the best he could, but remember, I don't know if you were there, he had a heart attack and like, he, that. <laughs> he yeah. had to like, he had to like bail for a long time. So I it was remember. like, um, <laughs> so I knew that I was supposed to do these things and I, but I, I honestly must have sounded like such a joke. My at teachers those, at those auditions. No, my teachers never talked about it. We never talked about orchestral auditions. It wasn't until much later that that it was even like a thought of mine. It makes sense in part though, because there is an ocean of string players. But in order to be like the guy or one of the three or four people in an ensemble, that is a whole other level of responsibility, accountability. And as you know, those dudes sit in those chairs for 45, 55 years. They die on stage and they're still like emeritus. Like they're still, he's, <laughs> hey, he sounds, he sounds okay, right? I mean, that sounds all right. It's true. It's true. Um, so then, um, let's talk a little bit about the, the years right after CSUN. So you were thinking about doing the studios or like kind of what was your first foray like once you had kind of left school undergrad? Well, well going back a little bit to CSUN because mm -hmm. I sort of had two CSUN careers. Okay. So I, I was there, like we talked, we were there at the same time. When did you leave by the way? So since I did a year of exchange, I was there from 95 to 2000 and I was there from to like the winter of 2000. Right. So, so it's similar to my story then in, in that case. And, I, and by the way, we completely lost touch. Like after we both left school, we haven't talked in like how long, a decade and a half, two decades. At, at the very least, <laughs> at the very least, although I was always following your career because because Carrie had been in touch with you and she'd always be like oh shit look at Dennis playing in the LA Phil and I'm like oh shit that's, that's funny. awesome it was so it was so cool to see um I don't know if Ron Leonard was still playing with the Phil at that time I don't know I'm he would have been the he would have been the principal cellist I think he'd probably no. like retired by then no, yeah. but it was just like like it's just so funny because even though like we were all we were all like good musicians by the time we got, you know, to the end or people had like changed majors, right? Oh, music education, yeah, <laughs> composition, because like there, I mean, when you start hearing people make the progress and you real, like, I just saw people like, no, I'm just not cut out for this. Um, but you never know who is going to actually do the thing. You just never know. And sometimes it's a lot of it is luck. 
<laughs> so anyway, yeah. you're saying you had two CSUN careers. So there was yeah. like, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so I did, I also did an exchange program. So I, so I was thinking before doing music, one of the things I wanted to do was maybe do like a history degree oh, when yeah. I was at the Naval Academy, right? I've always, I've always, you know, anyway, being a, you know, a child of the Cold War, I was like, ooh, Germany looks really cool. Oh, we have an exchange program in Germany. Ooh, and I like German classical music. Ooh, yeah, let's go there. And it's brass tradition, right? Like right, Germany right, is a right, place right. for that. Exactly. So, so I went for a year abroad over there. And that's kind of when like the whole orchestral thing started making sense to me. Because over there, that's, you know, that's a real They pay thing. tribute to the orchestra. They really take it seriously. Yeah. Right. So that's when it sort of started dawning on me. Oh, you can have a career in an orchestra. Oh, okay. And I thought about staying there. And, and I actually stayed an extra uh, three quarters of a year. Um, but eventually came back. I was like, nah, I'm going back to LA and I'm going to do the thing in LA because, you know, that's home and that's what I want to do. Um, so then my second CSUN career, I came back and finished off my degree in, I don't know, a year and a half or so like that. Um, so, so still, you know, I was still like, I came back and I was going to be the, the, the studio guy. And then, and then I went to, um, I think at that point, I felt like I was good enough to be a professional. I was, I was, I was only working, I was, I was living off only music at that yeah. point, you know, not that, I mean, barely subsisting, right? Not like I was putting away stuff for my trust. Yeah. Like yeah. That. But you were just getting that. Yeah. I yeah. did the same. I did the same thing. Um, And I think actually the only reason I was able to do that is because I was living with Carrie. Like, so both of us could kind of like throw in. For yeah. The yeah. See, but so, so, I mean, I had roommates and stuff, but I didn't yeah. have any other form of, 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 of income. So so, um, but I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a, this is my thought process at the time. Okay. Through those eyes, through the 23 year old eyes or however old I was, right. I'm good enough to be in the studios. Why am I not in the studios? Not seeing the whole big picture about, you know, like you're talking about how people stay in orchestras. Well, people stay in the studios till they die. Right. And why <laughs> wouldn't you that the right. union has negotiated so that they're, they get, right right yeah. right so i was pre i was really i had a real big chip on my shoulder about that also seeing other people that were that i felt were my contemporaries and of similar let's say skill level and mm -hmm. maybe even what i felt was under my skill level get better and gigs that i wasn't getting you know and it, it was really like rubbing me raw it, I re it really bothered me you know, yeah. and I'm like, what is this? Why am I not working like those other people? And then when I would get a gig, some, you know, older musician asked me, oh, wow, do you go to USC? I'm like, no, I don't go to USC, damn it. You know, <laughs> all those things. So I thought, you know what? I hear this orchestral world, you're actually measured by your merit, not by what school you went to or who's your friend or who you know. It's like, if you can play, you get the gig. Right. And if you can't play, you don't get the gig. Right. And so that's when my shift completely focused 180 degree to orchestral auditions. And that's when I decided to go study with uh, Jim Miller, who's uh, the associate principal of the Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, he was teaching at Cal Arts, which is totally the not Philharmonic kind of school. But it's a very crunchy, avant, awesome mm -hmm. school, though. Lots of great for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. But for like a traditional you know, orchestral experience, that's not the place to go. Right, but I knew right. that going in and I knew that I was going to go there to study with him. Right. That was the whole point. Everything else was just a, a distraction, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's when I really started getting on, on, on the, 
on, on the focus of orchestral uh, uh, auditions and, and, and all that. And it's because of Jim that I started subbing with the LA Phil eventually. Um, can you tell me, now this is like super brass tacks, but I think a lot of um, people who are trying to advance might really appreciate this. What Would you describe some of the changes in your actual practice when you started like saying, I want to be, because most of the, the people here are in, in community orchestras or want to be valued members of an orchestra. Um, like what are some of the things that you started really emphasizing so that you would audition well and also perform well in a section? So the name of the game as a freelancer is playing a wide range of things pretty well. Mm-hmm. Right. That's 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 how you survive as a freelancer, right? Because you got to be prepared for anything that comes along. The name of the game as an orchestral musician is being a super, super, super expert at something very, very narrow, you know. And so my my practice went from, um, you know, doubling and different styles and improvisation and this and that and other to just being like, nope, it's just orchestral excerpts and classical solos. And that's the only thing I'm doing. And I'm concentrating now on like super precise time, super precise intonation, super precise you know, interpretation. I mean, just like, and then like fast forward a couple of years and, and I had another, you know, moment of epiphany going, wait, my threshold for, for, for quality needs to be another couple of notches, notches up from where I was. I thought I was doing the work. I'm still not doing the work. It's got to be up here if I really want to be successful at things. And that's when I really started um, advancing at every audition that I went to. But it took a long time to get to that realization for me. And I think that's something um, for everybody to kind of remember. So like, I'm still a very much a practicing cellist, like, um, and you know, what was the Yasha Heifetz is like, if I, if I don't practice one day, I notice if I don't practice two days, my <laughs> section notice. And if I don't practice three days, like everybody right. notices right. But that um, as you get better, it's not like your foot comes off the throttle. If anything, it's like you are learning to survive in steeper terrain um, by being extremely precise. So it's not that you even have to, you have to keep up a level of practice, but it's more like your practice must become incredibly disciplined because you do not want sloppiness sneaking into your playing because you know when you go to cash out, all that stuff you put in the account labeled, this is how I play my instrument, you do not want a variety pack of sounds coming out of, of that account when you go to cash out. Like, so it's, it's like, I think that that's something like as you improve, it is also, I find more enjoyable to not take my foot off the throttle. Like I'm, I enjoy setting high bars for myself to go over. And even if it takes a few weeks for me to really start getting there, it's like progress is still possible, even though I'm technically an advanced cellist, whatever that is. Well, progress is always possible. I, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm teaching middle school band now, <laughs> and like getting them to 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 understand the concept of like, hey guys, that was good, but it can be better. Is like mind blowing to them, you know. <laughs> That's you right. Mean? That's as good as we can play it. <laughs> no, you can play it better. <laughs> no, I I suspect there is one better still. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um. So just talking like super like down to earth shop talk. So you're saying like you were making money um, doing doing music um, at a certain point after 
after, so I did the same thing. I fell totally in love with, with England when I did my, my year of exchange there. So I came back, stayed here a semester, finished up my degree, and then I got a work visa to go back. Um, I was just totally enamored. And this time I lived in the Northern part of the country. And it was just, I, I, I felt absolutely in love with that place too. They're just different, but it's like, might as well be a different country. Yeah. Um, but after I came back, first off, if you leave in LA and you come back, you do not have your place there anymore. I had a completely different experience. For me, for me I was at the back of the line but it also might have been because i wasn't as clever as you and i was um like known more for um for talking than playing <laughs> right and and like sure right haha but also like i think that they weren't taking me as seriously as a player and i maybe i wasn't taking myself as seriously as i should have so it's fair enough but i ended up doing a lot of non-music jobs or non-performance jobs so i got really serious about teaching which i discovered actually i like every bit as much as performing. Mm -hmm. um, but then I was like, I was tech support for Steinberg for a while because <laughs> I had a music, <laughs> I got a music like a technology certificate in Britain. So I did that. I was a ghostwriter for TV shows for a while, um, which was like super fun. I still every now and again get called like if somebody, I know. <laughs> I, <laughs> How do you get involved in that world? I don't okay. So my last semester uh, was the winter semester at CSUN and I had like two classes I had to take. So I was, um, uh, I think I'd already even done my senior recital. It was literally just like, take this class and you're done. And so I took a psychology class at Northridge and I had my cello with me. Um, maybe I was just about to do my recital now that I think about it. Why else would I have my cello? And um, the class was like one of those things where it's like, three hours once a week. Like it was one of these epic things. And so the teacher was like, uh, right. He was just done like two hours in. So he said, Emily, um, we will all go early if you play the cello for us. And I'm like, and I was practicing seven hours a day. So I'm like, I got this under my fingers. And so I actually played a little bit of the Shostakovich Sonata that I was doing for my, uh, senior recital. And afterward, one of the women caught up with me and she said, Hey, you, um, you're a music major. You sound really good. Um, my husband is actually a composer and there's this new thing. It was, she, she tried describing reality TV because this is like <laughs> nascent. She said, there is this show and we need an, we need like musicians for it, but like, um, do you know musicians? And I'm like, you're asking me to contract a gig. I will absolutely do this for you. <laughs> the show was survivor. No. And uh, so like it was me and Anna Kostuchek and Ilona you know, Geller oh. and uh, like all of us, like, I don't know if all went right. I think she had already left there, but like it was all of all of us, maybe Alma Fernandez might've been there as well. So like all the people who I'd been like doing studio work and stuff with, um, we did that and we got paid each $85 cash oh, <laughs> and, and no royalties, but then after I got back from England, I, um, I phoned the, the composer up and I said, Hey, do you have any more contracting work? Do you have like, I, there's no work for me right now. And I am just desperate. And he said, um, do you know how to write music? I mean, and I did know how to write music, but like, and he said, it's really simple. It's loop based stuff. So I was like, sure. He said, come by my house tonight. So 
he had a laptop and some floppies and he's like, learn how to use this and come back tomorrow. And so I stayed up all night learning how to use the software. And I came back the next day and I got paid $16 an hour to be a ghostwriter for him oh for God. years. No, wow. By the way, no cue sheet. I begged, please put me on one cue sheet because those royalties are juicy and nope, just no. And so off and on for years, I wrote for him. And then um, I dated a composer a lot later. Um, and when he would be like under incredible deadlines, you guys should know that people who write music for TV, for network TV yeah. are insane. They're yeah. insane. They're like, okay, so there's no chemistry between these two characters and we need you to create some. <laughs> Yeah, and you have and do, it, and do it yeah and you have four hours full orchestra because <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> we're going to air tomorrow <laughs> so yeah. anyway so um and so if they if he needed anything that was like loop oriented atmospheric or just cello over the top of something so yeah that's how I kind of fell into that you can see that like I had the balls to say yes when I didn't have the skill I had the confidence in myself that I would be able to learn it because I've listened to music my whole life and I've listened to a lot of loop oriented dance music so like it's not hard it's not hard. yeah um, <laughs> um our phrases <laughs> right it, i'm just sorry like it especially they make it so easy now they really do and it should be easy it should be easy come on <laughs> anyway so but you can see that it was just it was mostly luck if i hadn't taken the psychology class yeah, yeah that yeah. would not that would not have happened so um so and then i worked behind the counter at baxter north at music which was this magnificent retrofit of all of so I was very classically oriented but all those guys played in rock bands in the valley in LA in the 80s and so they taught me about classic rock death metal punk um I got I just got this wonderful appreciation for all of that and then of course I started getting gigs because people from famous bands come in and they're just like do you know anybody I'm like is me <laughs> it was like it was crazy I ended up like meeting the guys from Weezer and then I just like and then playing with all of the various people who played with Weezer it just like wow. it was super random it doesn't hurt that I was a girl sure also playing the cello like hey hey ho, ho. like that's like yeah. a kind of a thing right. um so so those are all the jobs that I did when I was like not completely making it as what I thought I would be either a studio or maybe a, an orchestral musician. So yeah. were there things that you did that were not music just to like make the ends meet? Well, when, uh, you know, when I finished up at CSUN, like I said, I was, I was just gigging and most of my gigs, like 99% of them were salsa gigs, um, which I love the music and I've learned to, for a long time, I kept it as secret as I could because I felt that the upper echelon of LA musicians doesn't uh, respect that music. And I still believe that most studio musicians don't respect that kind of music. Um, but as I've learned, as I've expanded and, you know, learned more about more things, I very much respect that music and, 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 I, and I find it very uh, fulfilling. But at that point, um, I was doing mostly that work and I kept it as secret as I could from other things, you know, but the mm -hmm. reality was, is so you, I was, you know, you were saying how you fell to the back of the line when you came back from, from the UK. I felt like I didn't fall back the line because I was already at the back of the line. <laughs> so I came at least in the, in the quote unquote white world in yeah. the, in the Latin world, I came right, right back where, where I was at because I was one of the better trombonists. Like brother. Yeah. Right. Well, not only that, but like, 
I could read on site. I showed up on time, you know, all you, had all, you had all the professional. Right. So yeah. I popped right back into that scene and I could make my, you know, my subsistence living, but I, I was, you know, on the periphery of the, of the white music world and doing all those B and C, you know, freelance gigs and, 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 and whatever. Eventually though, things started getting better and better and better and better. Um, when I was doing my master's degree, I actually worked at a place called RFBND, Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that records um, books for the blind, um, textbooks usually for the blind. Um, and the books are actually recorded by volunteers, but I was a paid employee that was basically like their like a session manager, you know, director kind of, yeah, yeah. kind of, yeah. And 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 so that was a part-time job that did you know Monday through Thursday. Um, you know, after, after school and it, and uh, it paid for the, the new car that I had. Cause I decided to, of course, you know, reward myself for my bachelor's degree and buy a brand new car, um, you know, and, but at a certain point I was able to, 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 to quit that job because I was getting um, more and more gigs and funny enough touring. I was touring with an orchestra in Europe. Thanks to a friend I had met over there. Um, I eventually started touring with other, other groups. I eventually started touring with, um, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, I actually nice. started touring with Queen Latifah. Can um, I ask, was John Faddis in in the Earth, Wind, and Fire brass section? So there are two official Earth, Wind, and Fire bands. So he wasn't in the one I was in. Uh, so there's Earth, Wind, and Fire with Maurice White. He kept the official name, and the other guy who wrote a lot, like fifty percent of the of the hits, mm -hmm. was Al McKay, and he had Al McKay and the Earth, Wind, and Fire experience. Got so, it. So I was on the Al McKay band, uh, and uh, with some of the some of the original members were on this band, some of the original members were on that band. So, you know, and there was always crossover depending on who was fighting with who. <laughs> yeah, um, the the um, but all of the Earth, Wind, and Fire um, brass like comes correct. <laughs> like yeah. that is serious. It's like Tower of Power has got nothing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it's definitely such like good a, players. That was definitely a bucket list moment. You know, I was like, man, I get to tour with Earth, Wind, and Fire. This is awesome. How many are you still? Are you sick of Shining Star yet? Or you're like, no, nah, man. <laughs> well, the my my Earth, Wind, and Fire career was really short because um, I went on on the road with them right before my last semester at Cal Arts to finish mm. my master's degree, right? I, I was doing a bunch of road gigs and stuff and, and, and they called and I went and they actually offered me the gig. They're like, well, we don't have a steady trombone player right now. Do you want to be a steady guy? And, and things were felt like they were really picking up in LA for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And the, the trumpet player, Mike Davis, was, is a horrible person. No, oh, no. He was maybe... Up until that point, the worst colleague I had ever had. Yeah. So I was like, I'm well, sorry that there's another person that's worse. Well, yeah, things got worse. So um, point is, 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 is I thought, well, things are getting better in L.A. Earth, Wind and Fire is cool, but I got to stand next to this guy. And I got And I really should finish this master's degree. Yeah, I really should. So I said, no, thanks. I'm going to go back to L.A. And so I finished my degree and went back to L.A. and, you know. Uh, another you know other roads open, opened up for me but um what was the point of all that it was fun while it lasted but it was short-lived yeah so um so 
you like things did pick up in LA for you and you kind of, um, have shared this stage with like some, some super, like what we would consider like heavy hitters. Um, also some of the names might not be people that the audience recognizes, but like there are kind of musicians, musicians where it's like, you know, like not a lot of, um, a lot of people like know Brad Meldow, but we all know Brad Meldow, right? And we're like, <laughs> right. oh, damn, that guy, right? right? Um, so um, like kind of take us through your arc of like things picking up um, and then kind of like, what, what was it like to actually feel yourself doing the thing, the thing that you set out to do that you work so hard to do that cost yeah. you, and it did cost you a lot also, right? You did have to say no to gigs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that's also one of the characteristics of being a freelancer. Luckily, if you're successful enough, you start having to go, you know, you offer two gigs at the same you time. You get, well, which one do I choose? And luckily one teacher had told me, look, three characteristics, money, uh, money, social advantage, and musical fulfillment. If yep. a gig has all three of those, it's a great gig, do it. If it only has two, it's still a good gig. If it only has one, well, you know, okay. But if it has none of those things, if it's not paying well, if it's not advancing you socially in the music world, right, giving you more prestige mm -hmm. or, or opportunity, you know, and if it's not musical fulfilling, why are you doing it? Right. So, the, so those that I always remember that uh, uh, lesson, and and that was the the yardstick that I always uh, measured, you know, my gigs by. And uh, but you know, there were time, there were lean times where. Yeah, this gig doesn't pay well. It doesn't advance me anything, and it's not musical fulfilling. But you know what? If I don't do this, I don't get to I don't get to pay the rent. So I'm gonna go do it. That's right. Um, uh, I although I did know that I was like starting to make it in, in LA when in my contract to play wedding music, I had a thing that's like there is a two hundred dollar extra fee if you ask for Pachelbel. <laughs> <laughs> Like, first off, you don't, you don't want this. Everybody has this at their wedding and at their funeral. Let me play you a couple things. Yeah. Did you, you, you want something. You want something. Else. You're not going to notice the difference. Anyway. You promise you. And, and honestly, you want it to sound like your wedding. Give you right. something else. Right. right. Um, but um, so, so yeah, what are like, what, what does the arc look like when you're like, things started picking up? So you were just called, when you talk about gigs, because I think a lot of people actually don't know what that means for, for string players. Like, unfortunately for us, like casuals, it's like, it's mostly weddings and yeah. Yeah, yeah. openings. So what is it like for a trombone player? Well, a gig is basically any one-off job, right? You know, Joe Schmall calls you up, says, hey, I need a trombone player for, you know, for this salsa band or this church gig or this, you know, wedding brass quintet or, you know, this rock band needs a horn section on your trombone player. Like it's any one-off job um, and you get usually get paid in cash, maybe check, you know, but usually cash and you don't know what it's going to be. Usually you have no idea what the music is going to be. You may I mean, you know. There's sight reading gigs for the most yeah. part. Yeah. Mostly sight reading gigs. I mean, you may know like, what kind of band it is. Is it a rock band? Is it a jazz band? Is it, you know, so you get, you take the right gear, right? But that's pretty much it. You know, you know the time, you know the pay, you know the venue. That's, you know, and the style maybe. that Wear black. Yeah, and, and the, you're right, and the attire, if that's, if that's, you know, something that's important. So yeah, I was just getting, you know, a, a bunch of those. And at this point, this was like, we're talking 2008, 
eight, nine, ten, somewhere mm -hmm. around there. Um, um, I was already subbing with the LFO quite a bit, you know, where, how where did I, that, can I ask how that happened or it's, it's okay if we don't need to see the wizard, you know, behind the, yeah, no, no, not, the not, it's not, it's not a secret or anything like that. I mean, I just, you know, I live born and raised in LA, you know, I, I took lessons from everybody who I could possibly take a lesson from. And so when I started getting more serious about classical music, I was like, well, I should take lessons from the LA Phil guys, you know? But I had heard so many horror stories about Ralph Sauer, the, the principal trombonist mm. at that time, that I delayed taking lessons uh, from him until I finally did. And I was like, he's a nice old man. Why is everybody, you know, why has he got such a bad rep? So, and then, like I said, I started, um, so I studied with him every so often. It wasn't regular. Right. Um, uh, and then I went to CalArts and studied with Jim Miller, who's the associate principal, right? And, um, and, he was my teacher, but we also kind of hit off a, a personal uh, relationship, you know, because mm -hmm. he was mu much closer to my age. I mean, he's still, you know, a generation above me or half a generation above me, but still there was some relating there going mm -hmm. on, you know. Um, and I, I think at a at a certain point, I think he felt that, oh, he's ready to start subbing, you know. And, and so he put my name on the list. And I think the first time I subbed in there was 05 or 06 or something like that. And Remember was, what you played? I have no idea. And it was, and it was I blocked months, out. Yeah, right. And it was once in a long while, you know, every few months or something. But eventually, at some point, it was like I was the guy that they would call. We need a trumpet, call Dennis, you know. And that was fantastic because I could count on, I mean, I couldn't count because you never knew. But, you know, looking at the, the, the past years, like, oh, well, I can count that I'm playing this amount of times per month with the LA Phil. And I can sort of figure that into my, my monthly budget. You know, it wasn't always there 100% time, but most of the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, eventually I, I basically have studied with Ralph Sauer, former principal, uh, Jim Miller, who's, you know, the current associate principal, um, uh, uh, Steve, uh, who was another principal after Ralph Sauer, uh, Steve Witzer, uh, who unfortunately died unexpectedly, but he was super generous. But And then Nitsan Haros, who was the following principal, you know, so like all of those, all of those guys, I would have studied with, with Sonny Osmond too, but he didn't give lessons. He's the second trombone player, um, you know, and then by the time uh, the current principal, David Rihanna rolls around, you know, like we're contemporaries. And at that point I was, I was the steady sub and, you know, I, I mean, we, I have played for him, but it was a different relationship at that point, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's how it happened. I just, eventually they felt that I was at a level where I could, they can give me a chance to be on, 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 you know, on that stage with them. And man, that was such an eye opener going from like, you know, the pickup orchestras and, and regional orchestras that I'd been playing to go play with them. I just remember like, I, rem I, ah, this is a distinct memory. I remember from my first rehearsal with the LA Philharmonic was like, I don't even have to try to be in tune. It just is in tune. You know, I don't have to think about intonation. It's just in tune. Like my hand goes to where it just is in tune. And I mean, that was my sensation at the time. Obviously now it's different. <laughs> but at, at the time I was just like, this is amazing. The, this orchestra is so in tune that it's not even a thought of mine. Right, because the level is so high. And that's one of the things like you always want to be, and I always was 
I was always like either the alternate or like the lowest level player in the good orchestra. That was kind of like my trajectory throughout like middle high school and and in college, I, I was the big fish for a little bit and then I was injured for a bit. But it's so amazing to sit around people who, first of all, make you level up. They make you sound better and they make you like fall on like your best practices. Like rehearsals are like invigorating. It's, it's, it's fantastic, but also, um, in, in like the like regional orchestras and stuff, I always was so angry that people were seemed like they were using the rehearsal to learn the music. And I'm like, it is too late for that guy. (laughs) Right. Like, and I think that's what I think that's maybe that's something for, for the listeners to think about. Um, now I know sometimes things are last minute or like halfway through a rehearsal, the conductor realizes that, that they've bitten off too much and they need to like, okay, let's try something else. But really if the day you get the music is the day you should learn at least all the notes. And then the next day you listen to it and you play along with the recording. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was never a question in that orchestra of like people struggling with notes or whatever. Some teacher at some point along the way, I don't remember who, um, I remember saying, and I didn't understand this then, I didn't understand it until much later, that rehearsal is not for learning your part, rehearsal is for learning everybody else's part, you know? And like, I did not understand that at first, even though I was prepared and, and, and actually my whole scholastic career, I was always first chair. Like there was one semester at CSUN where I got, I got spanked unexpectedly. I think I got complacent and like, I didn't get first chair in, in, in one group. And I was like, <gasps> <You know? laughs> and it never happened again. You know, I had to bring in an ambulance. <laughs> right. Like, exactly. Sorry. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I had a different experience grow, growing up that way, but, but, um, so I was always prepared, but yes. And in, in regional orchestras, oftentimes there are, you know, not just regional orchestras, because I played in a professional orchestra in Germany later. And, you know, it's not all it's a, well, it's not everything you hear about in the, in the stories, you know. And just yesterday, I, I, I'm, I'm a member of an orchestra here in Michigan, and we had a rehearsal last night. And I was like, oh, some of these string players still don't know their notes. Hmm. Imagine that string players, by the way, um, I want you to feel me looking at you like through your speaker that you're listening. Like I'm looking at you string players because we are, we are like war crimes in rehearsals, like in terms of (laughs) rhythms. We're like, I don't know. I don't know. Is it a, is it a dotted rhythm? Is it a triplet? Let's get sloppy. We're the worst. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because I was embarrassed for them. I was like, wait, the conductor has to do this halftime. For the, for the violins? Come on, are we in junior high? Right, like, I'm sorry, but unless it's like Prokofia 5, like, have it down uh, all of it. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what were some of, um, can you remember parts of like your favorite programs um, in, like that you participated in, in LA? Like I always associate LA, now granted this is Asa Pekka before Gustavo, but like, I remember they lit up the rite of spring and like that kind of like, be early modern music I always felt like they were like so like Daphnis yeah. and Chloe same thing like they were yeah. so good at all that well Esapeka is famous for his Rite of Spring like that's supposedly one of his like signature pieces that he really like he never used the score like I mean <laughs> right. granted the score looks like somebody just like yeah. <laughs> whacked a bunch of ink on it anyway it's too busy a couple but, yeah. a couple yeah there's a couple of things speaking of Esapeka so we're playing this was one of my earlier 
uh, uh, gigs with the LA Phil. We're playing Messian from the Canyon to the Stars, I think is the name of the, of the piece, right? And, um, oh, and I was playing bass trombone, which, you know, is not my forte. I, I'm, I'm a decent bass trombone player, but I'm not a dedicated bass trombone player. Anyway, so we're playing, and I don't, I don't remember if this is the first time with Esapeco or not, but um, I just, you know, it's Messian. And so the chords are rather Crunchy. complex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just remember, um, you know, we're playing through this and he stops and he's like, yeah, second clarinet, that's like, that's a C sharp, not a C natural. And just going, you heard that? What? What? You know, and this is already me being post, you know, master's degree or, you know, or, or something like, or, or, or somewhere halfway through my master's degree, something like that. I'm just, mm-hmm. How is, I just don't understand that these, these ears this guy has, you know? Um, so that was one thing. Another one was at this point, I think I had already been working a lot with the LA Phil. Um, and uh, Simon Rattle came to conduct. Oh, was, he's so uh, good. It might have been Mahler 6 or something like that. I don't remember exactly what. Some some big piece. Maybe it was a Shostak. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and I just remember, you know, he starts off the piece and just my jaw dropping. You know, I'm not playing. I don't play for who knows how long. Right. Literally, like, turning over to Jim, who's playing first my former teacher, you know, now my buddy, and and literally within two bars going, this is the real fucking deal. He's like, this is it. And I, I mean, it was just, it was mind-blowing. Just watching the guy conduct two measures was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I haven't played a note yet. It's you so, know? yeah, that's, it's so nice to have like a conductor who and I think that's another thing to always remember that a good conductor is not there to beat time but he is there to give you a physical thing for all hundred and whatever people on stage to agree on that and then also kind of help us agree on the shape of phrases he's like I don't know. People think of them as like these kind of vain, glorified metronomes, and there are conductors who are yeah. absolutely <laughs> those. I can name them. Peacocks. <laughs> I know. We'll, we'll hit pause. We'll be right back. Um, but um, but uh, a good conductor, and in fact, I was disappointed a lot because I got when I went to Idlewild Arts, or they called it Isamata back then. Yeah, you went there. I went there. Mm-hmm. I went so, there did like you play under Larry Livingston? I did when I did for one or two years. We did Chike Five. Were you there? I didn't do Chike Five. I did Muller Two, um, okay. uh, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, Sibelius Two, um, Pictures at an Exhibition. Those were not years that I went, but I, I was always I was always first chair in the in the lower orchestra. Oh, with uh, Rintoul. Yeah, I went there from '93 to like. Mm, 98 or something like that I don't know so we we were there I was there 91 through 95 I actually went there this summer before um before Northridge that's funny why would yeah. the same, same time just not quite the right not quite ensemble <laughs> but yeah and then I was also the doing like the um Hans Jensen um master classes where I had probably the very worst memory slip in public of my entire life. Uh, I mean, it felt like everything was crumbling, but actually let me, 
here, I'll tell the story. Cause again, this is all for people who are learning. So it was the Bach first suite, like the one, the cello song. Yeah, yeah. I was already one of the less advanced people. Um, it was just before I'd learned how to practice effectively. So people recognized that I was talented and hungry, but my practice was just very inefficient. Still, I got in, I was good enough. Anyway, so I wanted to play this and I just had a terrible memory slip. And um, I just stopped and I couldn't keep going and I was shaking and my parents were there and they were like furious with me and super disappointed. And Hans said, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> with his Danish voice. It's like, it's okay. It happens to all of us. Let's get the next person. Emily. Good job. Good job. We see you next week. Cause there was two weeks to it. And so he, he said, what would you like to play next week? It can be anything you want, make it something easy. You can have the music if you want. And he said, this time you will make them cry. And it was just like, and so I, I played the swan because it was easy. And also it's beautiful. Nobody doesn't want to hear the swan. Right. So it was like, he really gave me like this, like, it's okay. Literally nothing will happen in this context. Like Nobody there is, there is no problem. <laughs> Nobody cares. You're fine. So it was just like, awesome. Um, anyway, but yeah, so I had this amazing conductor in Larry Livingston who not only was a, a very good, like just kind of connector of people, but he also told us the stories of the pieces. He gave us the biographies yes. of the composers. He told us, so when we played Mahler too, he's like his favorite daughter had just died, <laughs> right? Yeah. So like when you hear, and also he told us about like how he was kind of a closeted Jew and he became Catholic so that he could fit into Viennese society. But then he snuck in all these klezmer themes in the slow movement. He's like, yeah. we want you to lean into that. So then when I went to Northridge and it wasn't David Axe right away, it was all these guest conductors that they were I think scrolling through trying to hire somebody and I was just like Brrr. it was so disappointing I agree Livingston was probably the first con conductor at that level that I ever experienced you know just that was more than just beating time like you're saying you know he's why and I wanted to go to USC because uh, I wanted to kind of follow him there and and getting back to that like that was, I think, one of the, that was maybe the biggest reason why Simon Rattle, like, was so, so impressive to me, because he just exuded the piece from, like, from, like, the word go, you know? It wasn't like, oh, it'll take a couple bars to set. It was like, no, here's where it is. Here's where I'm going. You know, follow along or get left behind. It doesn't matter. This is what's happening. Yeah, we're on the right. Let's go. And not in a mean way at all. He was super cordial and just, you know, charming not not in a not in a greasy sort of way just, he's a pro yeah top you know, to bottom but just i remember that that i remember that just just my mind being blown um there was a there was a uh an what is it, assistant conductor i guess who shall remain nameless um <laughs> that was one of my most stressful concerts with the la phil because he was horrible horrible couldn't he was a bad timekeeper even you know, and I was like, how does this person get to this level? How does this person get this opportunity that he's such a horrible metronome, you know, much less a, like a, 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 a personification of music, you know? And I just remember my stomach feeling in knots and just being totally anxious and, and feeling horrible. Right, like, like the ground is not beneath your feet when you, when like nobody kind of knows what what's yeah. going on and with brass instruments even so, i think more than wind right yeah. that attack is like yeah. it's everything yeah 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 and 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 so and then being one of my very early gigs with the la so being you know also being on on my you know toes right yeah. wanting to not screw everything up 
and just I remember again, I, I was always playing with Jim uh, playing first, you know, going, Dad, is it always this stressful? He's like, No, this is especially stressful. <laughs> At least you had it's actually super valuable to have like a a compatriot next to you. Like it's so important to have like somebody who's sympathetic to you. Nothing worse than feeling like you're being judged by the person next to you. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, Tell yeah. Tell me, I give a story. About that. So you, you, you hit on something really important that I, again, I didn't figure out till later. So I was able to play in LA Phil because I had an advocate. Right. You know, I assume it was Jim for the most part, but I obviously had enough confidence from the other players in, in the orchestra or in the trombone section that they allowed me to, you know, be there. Right. Right. Um, but it was it was because of Jim that, you know, got my foot in the door and, and continued to, 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 to be there. And so in the freelancing world, see, I don't think I had anybody there in that role. Even though I knew all the major players, even though I studied at some point or another with all the major players, I didn't have um, an advocate, you know, and I didn't figure that out so much later that, oh, all these guys that are my contemporaries or so that are getting these, you know, gigs and making a living where they have in some way or another, I'm not saying they, I'm not saying they weren't good players, but, you know, a component that they had that I didn't was that they had some advocate kind of putting their name out there and, and, and giving them opportunities that, that, that I didn't. And again, I'm not saying that I didn't have people that weren't generous because there were very generous people, you know, but as far as getting freelance gigs and, and, and climbing that ladder in the, and I'll call it the white, the white music world for lack of a better term, you know, um, because there are, it's not inaccurate. Well, and many people, including white mentors of mine have, have I've had this conversation with them. Um, and they've asked me, do I think if if race has played a part in 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 my career in the studio scene and and you know in, in LA? And we've had long conversations about that, you know. And and to sum it up real quickly, I've never had an experience where I felt somebody was keeping me down in that world because I look a certain way. But it's also very easy to notice that everybody there looks talks and dresses the same. Now, it's really hard for me to believe that, you know, in 20, 2000 or 2010 or 2020, that I'm the first Hispanic trombonist that could play at that level. You're actually the only Hispanic um, trombonist in Los Angeles. I didn't want to say anything about right. it, but. Um... So I can't believe that no time before that, there's not been another Hispanic player that, you know, can play to that level that, right. that could be led into that click. The only other person that I can think of off the top of my head is Francisco Torres, who's a fantastic player. Um, and he's doing quite well for himself, you know, uh, but he definitely um, is, is, is a very formidable jazz voice. Right. Uh, and that's not what I do, right? I'm a classical player. If I, if I were to kind of pigeonhole myself, you know, <laughs> um, that's what I concentrate on, you know? And, and, so, and so he's doing quite well for himself, but really there's nobody else. Yeah. Sorry. My cat is like trying to make sweet love to the microphone. Bella, you, you have impeccable timing. You're just like a violist. Always on time. Right. Yes. So um, I don't know. Did race play a part in, 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 in my career in LA? I can't say for sure, but I can't say for sure not either. And, and I'm not, a, if it did play a part, I think it was unconscious, unconscious on, on most people's, uh, you know, interactions. 
because I never felt it. Right. There's also, um, there is this also thing in terms of advocates where I, I used to have advocates and I did start in playing in the studios. Mostly it was recording studios as opposed to the movie studios, but still that's a good living. And that's, they, they're kind of, there's a, and there's definitely an overlap in those two worlds. It's on the same lot half the time. Um, and once I took time off for an injury, what ends up happening is your advocate vouches for you and like your sin reflects on them. And I think people are just really freaked out at the idea of letting somebody new into the circle because also there's either, well, they reflect badly on, on me, or I had an experience where somebody brought me in on a gig last minute and I played the shit out of the solo and the producer wanted me and then not her. And I got in real trouble after that. And I was never called for a union gig after that. Mm. And it was just like, it's, it's a very, um, especially because the industry is also, um, I'm not gonna say that the studio world is collapsing. The studio world in Los Angeles is collapsing though, because there's with, with technology and also there's just so, so many great musicians out there. I mean, there are kids at Juilliard who are playing as well as people sitting in the front of every section in orchestra. I mean, these, these people are insane. They're so, it's almost like, um, like gymnastics and ice skating, how like 30 years ago, like if you did like a single jump, you're really good. And now you have to do like all of these crazy things. Like these people are so good. They're so much better than I was at that age. It's true. But now being starting to be one of the, on on the older side of the curve, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in different orchestras and ensembles, um, there are wonderful young musicians, right? Mm-hmm. But there is something to be said that is very important. Experience. Knowing how to and comport yourself. Happen. Well, I mean, even besides that, just the experience with music making. Right. That's absolutely know? true. And even if they know all the notes, even if they know how it's supposed to go and, and, and all that, it's, and of course, there's always exceptions to every rule, right? No, sure. Um, but but I've heard a lot of young players that are fantastic, but they lack that that like third dimensional quality of like, you know, I've played this piece a hundred times or I've played pieces like this a hundred times, you know. And also the there's a real skill to playing with other people right. with and being flexible with the interpretation because this is how this ensemble is going to play this. So if you're right, I think a lot of these kids are like very good at imitating their teacher's interpretation. But then if I were to say, well, yeah, but what if you were to play this like this other style or what, how would you play this part if you were being conducted by Ormandy or instead Boulez? What would you change? And they'd be like, hmm. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right. right? I, I think that I think that there is there is something to that. But the um, the the politics of of the studio scene, I think there is a desperation that happens there. And the, like I was always told, so I started subbing in the TV studio scene because my teacher at Northridge, actually, he was like a double book myself. I need you to go to Warner Brothers today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
And yeah. so I was like 19. Wow, really? <laughs> I didn't even have a car. Um, wow. but, but we'd worked on sight reading for the whole semester because he said, what do you want to learn to do? And I'm like, I am really, really bad at sight reading, especially complex rhythms. And I was already wanting to be a jazz minor at that time. And like jazz is like, you know, rhythm is the heart of everything that's jazz. So I'm like, I needed to get that together. And so we were working on that. And so we, I went and it was a, a cartoon and you know, the music for cartoons is like <laughs> mind bending right, and like right. chromatic. And so I remember I sat way at the back and I looked for this one woman who my teacher told me to look for. I said, hi, this is my first time doing this. I am very afraid And she's like, okay, so we're going to do this. We're gonna, and like, she like took me through all of it. And so like every time I would do, I only did maybe six or seven movies and maybe the same number of TVs. Or I mean, I did like hundreds of appearances on TV, but it was all going to the composer's house and like dubbing over like all the fake strings, right? Like I've done that more times than I can count, but, um, but I would always seek her out and I'd be like, sup. And anytime, by the way, I had an opportunity to hire another cellist she's top of the list <laughs> because I could not have done it without her. Yeah. But, um, Take people back. yeah, exactly. And so sometimes also it's like, well, what are you going to do for me? Right. I, I always felt like there was that kind of thing and maybe it's worse in string players. Like there's a snobbery that's endemic, I think to some kind of string players. Um, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or what, but, um, since I've always decidedly, I've been a serious musician, but I'm definitely like an irreverent kind of wild card. Um, I think that that might've actually done me dirty <laughs> in terms of like being a reliable fixture in the studio scene. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so um, you know, thinking about like things that caused me to pivot. So after I stopped being hired on, on union gigs, I had to really consider what I wanted to do because I had a very full teaching studio and I was still not I was, I was making, breaking even, but I was working six days a week and I was not saving any money at all. And I just felt like I was getting boiled alive. Like it just, and, and I just wasn't yeah. doing what I wanted to do. Yeah, No, I only saved enough money just to have enough in case my car broke down. That was right. It. Right. Exactly. It was just like, it was not the way I wanted to live. And I had a sense of desperation. And also it just, after, after that incident, uh, LA felt like super unwelcome unwelcoming it just like you know I was living in the valley and just driving by all these places where I was no longer welcome it was just like it just burned me up so I made a pivot and I decided I was going to go study I'd studied um, I'd taken a bunch of students that nobody wanted people with brain and um, like traumatic brain injuries people who were old and had memory problems and I just I found them like a really exciting cohort because they they challenged me I had to like and I wasn't, I wasn't an expert, but you know, at least the internet was old enough that I could start doing research and I just got super hot for that. So that was a pivot that I made because I was told no by the scene that I thought was going to be my career. So I just want to know, like, have you had such, oh, such, had, tell me about, tell me about some changes in direction. Tell me I've about had multiple pivots. nimble footed Dennis. So, so the first one was, you know, switching from wanting to be a studio musician to want to be an orchestra musician, not because I wanted to, but because I saw, I felt that, you know, well, I'm not going to be let into this, into this crowd. Now being, you know, 20 years later, I understand that, well, that's, you know, it's a long marathon, right? And if you still and, wanted it, you maybe could have gotten in, but like. Maybe, but it would be, it would just be starting now, right. maybe, 
Right. Maybe, yeah. You know? Um, so, okay. So, uh, you know, fast forward, do my master's, uh, fast forward, I'm gigging and, and, and I feel like good about it. I quit my, my part-time job and I'm just gigging. And, um, what happens? I'm doing auditions, lots of auditions, always getting cut out at the first round. Oh, first cut round out. is brutal. I'm always happy if I get past the first. Always. I'm talking about 100% out of the first round. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Okay. You know why? I play with LA Phil. I got to be good enough, right? Well, audition taking is a different skill set than playing in the band, you know? So um, just not getting anywhere. I mean, I have one like, you know, like a regional orchestra here or there, you know, but nothing, not a job that you can right. live off of, you know? And so um, at this point, well, I guess just music's not gonna happen for me. I'm gonna go be an engineer. So I applied to uh, an engineering program at Cal State LA who has a very uh, good engineering program, mechani mechanical engineering. And I wanted to, okay, I'm gonna go back to school and get a bachelor's in engineering. Well, I already had a bachelor's. They wouldn't let me into a bachelor's program. I had to apply to the master's program. I'm like, what? Okay, fine. I apply to my, I get into the master's program. I go to the first day class and I'm like, oh no, I am not prepared for this. These 19 year olds are talking, you know, just completely over my head. Yeah, I took calculus in high school, but that was six, seven years ago, whatever, you know. No, I don't. So, okay, if I'm serious about this, fine. I, 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 I dropped out of that to go to community college. I did algebra, geometry, trigonometry. Mind you, these are all semester classes. So I'm three semesters in. Long time. I'm in just so I can, just so I can start this master's program. Right, now. right. Because music's obviously not going not gonna to do it for me. It's not going to afford Look me. Get the, the rigor. Look at the rigor that classical music has taught you, though. You were like, first day, I'm not prepared. I'm going to get myself in order. Right. And it's funny is I was relearning things that I had already learned years and years and years ago, which was the weird thing, you know? So, um, 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 I put, I'm still taking auditions. I'm still gigging. I still have to feed myself, you know? And at this point I had moved in with, uh, with my new girlfriend. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and so I'm doing auditions, not doing well. I'm halfway through calculus, which is the last class I'm gonna take until I go back to the to the to the master's program. So I'm like a year and a half, a year and three quarters in of these preparatory classes, which I had already taken in high school, right? <laughs> um, and a friend that I met in Germany says, "Hey, my hometown orchestra is having an audition. My hometown orchestra is having an audition. You should audition." Mind you, he was he was the academist there. He was the apprentice there a, a couple of years back. So I said, huh. "Well." I was like, you're the natural shoe in. Why aren't you taking it? He's like, I don't want the job. I, my life is moving in a different direction, but you should take this job, this, this audition. Okay. So he put me in touch with the principal trombonist over there. We talked, you know, I played for them over Skype back then, you know, mm -hmm. and she was totally encouraging me like, yeah, come down, do it. And, uh, oh, sorry. What I forgot to say was that I had just gotten my wisdom teeth pulled, all four of them. So I was letting that heal. I hadn't played for six weeks. And that's when this audition, I told, was told about this audition. And that's when I told my, my, my girlfriend, you know, we were engaged already. And I said, look, I'm not going to take the, I haven't played for six weeks. The audition is six weeks from now. I'm not, I'm dropping out of calculus. 
I'm not taking any gigs. I'm not doing anything else except you're going to shred audition. This is this is it. And I and I and I promised her. I said, this is the last audition I do. If I do not win this audition, I'm quitting trombone. I'm done with it if I don't win this audition. You know, like I just I just had had it. You know, um, and lo and behold, I won. <laughs> you know, um, and so that was one huge shift, right? Because first of all, I had shifted to I'm going to be an engineer, and then all of a sudden, well, no, I'm going to still be a trombone player in another country, in an you know, in an orchestra, in a professional orchestra, full time orchestra, and so I moved to Germany for a few years, and that was a horrible experience. My section mates were horrible colleagues. Mm. Um, so much so that, I mean, nobody can point for sure, but at the end of that, I got Bell's palsy. The doctors don't know why I got Bell's palsy because I didn't have any of the typical uh, catalysts for Bell's palsy. So the only thing they could think of was like, have you been stressed? I'm like, yeah, I'm in the worst job I've ever had. Um, I'm super stressed every day. I want to quit. And literally there were times when a couple of friends of mine had to stop me from walking into the boss's office and saying, I quit. I'm not coming back tomorrow. Did the Bell's palsy um, like screw up your embouchure? I couldn't play. Yeah. I couldn't play. My, my half of my head was paralyzed. So um, that was another shit. I didn't play for a whole year. I waited around Germany for 11 months. I had unemployment insurance because I had, you know, the unemployment right, right, right. but to stay in, in Germany longer than that I had to get another job and, and I thought about staying there you know just getting another job until I cured up but in 11 months into it and I still couldn't play I was like well I don't want to waste my time being a waiter here I'm going to go back to LA and start a new career in my mid-30s you know or mm -hmm. mid-30s I was like 33 32 by the way recently married less than a year and my son you know is is a newborn you know, so um, this is the same girlfriend that is now my wife, by the way. <laughs> um, and so and so here I find myself unemployed and I can't do the one thing that I can do, play trombone. Right. So we pick up, we move back to L.A., move in with my mom. That's my mom's lovely. But, you know, I'm 30 something with a kid and a wife living at my mom's house. That's a dream comes true, you know. <laughs> And but I, that was and, just preparing for for COVID, right? Like all the people who had to move back right. in. Right. And 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 so I thought, okay, what the heck am I going to do with the rest of my life? Well, if I'm not going to play trombone, I'm going to make money because I'm tired of being broke. I'm tired of being broke. So okay, should I go back to engineering? Oh, that's going to take at least four years to do. Maybe I should do an MBA. That's only two years, and I can get a job like you know doing anything, getting paid decently. So right. I looked at that, and I was just like, no, nah, my heart's not into it. I'll just be a teacher, a band teacher. So I started doing um, a, a credential. The funny thing is, though, that a month after coming back from Germany, I was able to start playing again. So, I mean, I wasn't 100% cured, obviously, but I was able to start making noises on the trombone as well for a year. I couldn't make a noise. How do you say Bell's palsy in German? Uh, facial paralysis. Facial paralysis. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was going to be one of those where it like, you know, 97 <laughs> things. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, um, well, I'm, by the way, let's just have a moment of like, yeah, good on you for like getting out of there and healing up any, is there any um, longstanding anything from it? Oh, most definitely. I, I, I finally recovered to a point where um, I was, you know, I was comfortable doing just about any gig that I was called for so much so that I was actually appointed 
at the LA Phil to be the acting full-time second trombone player for, you know, season and a half. Cool. So, um, I never recovered 100% though. I, <laughs> I, I always felt that I was in the high 90 percentiles, you know, 95, 96, 97, something like, but I never felt a hundred percent. Just always an asterisk, like, yeah, wasn't right. Physically, I wasn't ever the same player, but I was definitely a much more mature player, you know, and, and, and could it, so, so that was a, a huge difference. So that was, so come back, look at a bunch of, look at a bunch of different careers, deciding I'm going to be a music teacher. And then the LFL calling me saying, Hey, you want this full-time job for a while? Oh, sure. I guess I'm a trombone player again. And then going through two auditions there, the first one was a no hire for the job that I was doing. Those after, are so frustrating, right? You after, prepare and then they don't hire anybody. Yeah. After six months of doing the job, they had the audition, they hire nobody. They say, can you stay on for another year until the next audition? Okay, I guess so. <laughs> you mean play with a great orchestra, get paid really well? and Right. It, it feels almost like a hire, kind <laughs> of, right? Yeah. But it's only a year contract. And then they had the audition after that year and they did pick somebody. It wasn't me. Um, and that's really heartbreaking. You know what? I mean, it's my hometown orchestra. It's the thing I've always wanted to do. You, you know how I to did. play with them. Yeah. And now I'm doing the job but I didn't win the job. You know, that was really hard. But all of a sudden I find myself unemployed again. So like, well, I guess I got to go finish that, that, that uh, teaching credential. But now, you know, my kid's older, my still living at my mom's house, all this stuff. I got to find a job while I also do this teaching credential. Right. So I found a job that would let me do in, in Lompoc, California. That would let me do uh, 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 the credential and get paid uh, for full-time work. And I went and I hated it. I hated it. I hated being a band teacher. I, I'm not the person for that. There are people built for certain things, and I am not one of those people built for that kind of work. They are impressive people who like can tolerate what they have to tolerate and still manage to stay constructive. I, um, yeah, they are saints. Saints. <laughs> They're special. I'm not religious. <laughs> well, actually, Paul Pate, you can see how like he is good at that kind of right, thing because right, 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 right. And you would think that I, because I'm similar enough to him, but the same thing, like orchestra band. I'm like y'all are clowns. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't. So at this point, I was already doing quite well at most auditions, even though I didn't win the LA Phil. Right. I won uh, a Navy job with the Navy. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to the Navy. Forget this junior high thing. Yeah. So I find myself, okay, I, I'm, now I'm going to be a Navy musician. So you're talking about pivots? There were a whole lot of pivots in a real short amount of time. I, I got medically disqualified at the, for the Navy. Okay. So. Was it the Bell's Palsy? No, they didn't. I didn't tell them about. It's that. not my business. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine saying it. So, so. Uh, I've always been a little on the heavier side, shall we say? Since, since, since after college, I think going into college, I was pretty normal, and then you know, adulthood and irresponsibility hit, and I, I st- sturdy and and Grecian is how I see it. <laughs> yeah, maybe okay, but at this point, you know, the cutoff age to go into the into the navy was. You can't be 40. I was 39 and 10 months. <laughs> okay. And I was like 45 pounds overweight, over their weight for my height. You know, I oh, got it. Got so, it. 
true i have broad shoulders and stuff so even you know i would have to be very skinny to to, to be on their you know so luckily they also have um body mass you know index allowances right so i was so determined to get this job by the way i had just been diagnosed with diabetes so knowing lots of incentive right so i so i was like okay i gotta lose 45 pounds in two months well you're in the right city for it right so i got to it in two months i lost 40 pounds and my and without medication, my blood sugar was in the normal range. My doctor said was between eighty and one hundred and twenty, and my and my recruiter said, you know, you have to you have to put in all your medical issues here and da 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 da. But then he he'd go over here off to another room and he's like, don't put down anything because you will get disqualified. But I never said that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so so between eighty and one hundred and twenty is normal blood sugar, whatever. I get I go to Meps, which is which is the, well, before that, I go to take the ASVAB, which is the aptitude test. Yes, I've taken the ASVAB. The highest score is 99. It's an adaptive test for those of you who don't know. Um, the highest possible score is a 99. I got a 98. Damn right. My recruiter said, I've never seen this before. You can have any job in the Navy you want. Are you sure you want to be a musician? Like, I want to be a Navy SEAL. He's like, okay, you can't have that job. You're too old. But otherwise, you can have any job you want. Like, yeah, I just want to be a musician. Anyway, right after that, I go to the medical testing. My blood sugar that day was 106, which is still within normal human range. Mm-hmm. But the Navy's limit is 100. <sighs> I looked at a donut that day, I think, you know, <laughs> and now was then. So that that was a thing. They just they wrote me off. And that was it. And that was well, my end, end of my Navy career. I think that you should have a business card and it says Dr. Dennis Hiron too sweet for the navy <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah so that's a, so then there's another pivot you know this is like this is honestly this is bobbing and weaving is what this is this is just really like go go you just you have know, to keep going forward well it really felt like that it really did it really felt and actually it punches it's punches bill bing Bill Bing was the trombone teacher, uh, sorry, the trumpet teacher at, at CSUN. I know Bill Bing. And he was one of those important advocates and mentors and just generous people with me. Um, he was so generous that he paid me just to go like rearrange his garage, you know, <laughs> you know things like that. Like, no, I was paid to babysit. Yeah. And yeah, to like or- or organize an office, like when people knew that I was just like, freaking yeah. out it was yeah. it was amazing teachers are so important right and so i bring him up because he he really like one of those people that puts you know your faith back in humanity but mm-hmm. i remember him telling me man he's like it's it's such a sad story with you you keep on doing the right thing and doing it well but life just doesn't you know is not giving you what 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 you're putting into it you know and really those few years really were tremendously difficult because it, it felt like at every turn there was another roadblock you were being told no like by the universe it seems yeah right? yeah yeah and it was really 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 hard you know like uh thinking i couldn't play anymore thinking i could do this thinking i could do that and and you know just always getting blocked for whatever reason anyway after that you know i was at that point i had some adjunct positions in la and and, and like you, I realized, hey, I really like this. I like teaching at the college level. I do. And, and those weren't Juilliard level students, but still, I really enjoyed it. I really, and I was like, man, 
you know what? I think I want to, I think I want to do this because I can't do the orchestra thing. Cause obviously I'm not really good at the, at the audition thing, even though at this point I was getting to just about every final round that I was doing, um, but still not winning, you know, at some point, you just you just want like emotional stability, right? It's because you have to work so you get into like this weird shape. It's like boxers who go on a diet and then you have to like binge right before the match, right? So you're like all big again. Yeah. Like it yeah. is it auditioning is in perpetuity be, is unhealthy, I think. Yeah, you have to stay at like Olympic level, you know. It's every too time. it's too much. And also you stop, at least for me, um it took some of the enjoyment out of the playing like I got good at it and I was edified by by sounding good but like the experience of doing it like the desperation element of it um, was caustic it was not healthy for me and music well that was I mean talking about desperation that's why I auditioned for the for the military bands uh, so like philosophically I, you know going back to the naval academy you know nearly 20 years before that like it was against my moral fiber to audition for the military, but I was so desperate for a job, any job that I was like, fine, I'll just audition for the Navy, you know? And, 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 and so that's, that's why I did that. It's not that I wanted that job. It's right. a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 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 so I, feel, I realized I really liked college teaching. And that's when I decided to go pursue my doctorate degree. Cause I knew that, to teach at a university level for, at a full-time level, you need a doctorate degree. That's right. And, and so that's when I started doing doing that. And that's why I'm here in Michigan. That's why I'm finishing with the doctorate now. You're in Ann Arbor? No, that's University of oh, Michigan. Oh, that's university. So you're in No, um, you just did. You know, you just oh, so you go to USC? <laughs> no, I've got Ann Arbor on the brain because that's what everybody my friend, said. no, my friend's husband is auditioning to be their conductor. Oh, um, okay. No, so this is... This is Michigan State in East Lansing. Lansing. That's the, other, the other school. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, to be fair, though, Sparty is a majestic, wonderful mascot. and See, you're amazing. I, I didn't know that until I got here on campus. No, Sparty is ridiculous and fantastic. No, I was um, like a huge college football fan for a while. And then my partner, Charles, um, is a Wisconsin Badger. And so like Sparty and Bucky, like always do like fun fighting things at games. And yeah, most of me also green and white, iconic, iconic. See, these are things that I didn't grow up with and didn't have any influence with, I think partially from, you know, having immigrant parents, you know, and. Yeah, but you also know how to season food. I, yes, yes. Sabor muy picante. That is oh. actually a thing I really miss about Los Angeles is like getting the insane like Spanish language ads on TV like later at night. Like they're so fervent and excited. And, and I just really miss all of like accidentally stumbling onto like, you know, Telemundo scrolling through the, <laughs> the channels. Like, I don't know. It's um, life is so much richer in a place where you have like m- multiple cultures going on. Oh, for Michigan sure. is like, actually, I don't know, maybe, maybe East Lansing because it's a college town, but at least where I live, it is incredibly white. You know, what's really unfortunate that I, I, I came here and then immediately COVID started. So I really can't say I know. We don't even know. That's right. I, don't, yeah, I really haven't seen anything. And also like, I'm 40, how old am I? 43, I think. Um, I'm married and now I have two kids. Like, I don't go out, <laughs> you know, 
I go to the and I and I come back. You know, if I'm out, I'm working. I'm not doing anything else. You know. Are your so, kids interested in music at all? Um, we started my uh, yes, they like music. Um, my oldest uh, was taking piano lessons in California before we moved here, and and uh, both had to take a break because of COVID. Right. So he hadn't taken lessons for like a year and a half, and my youngest just started. So we just started both of them again this month, actually. So yeah, they like it. I mean, and I don't push them to like be a musician. It's just I just think it's 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 um part of a good, well-rounded liberal arts education, you know, uh, uh, and and it and it teaches some, I think, some very good uh, personality traits that can be applied to so many other different areas. So know? many different, right? Like like um, yeah, being being a team player, bringing excellence, also being in a, being a benevolent stand partner, seeing working if somebody is struggling, problems, working through problems, you know, like, methodically. And also so having a sense of perspective that like, it's, if you do your very best and you screw up, you, you did your very best and you can learn to be better. Like there's always progress. There's all, oh, yeah. yeah. So, and also though, um, one of the few things that I feel like is great about our industry is that people excel very late in their lives, right? They were calling me kid when I was in my thirties, right? Most of the time you're like, Oh, wow. Who's this person who's like, and like, there are people making excellent music into their sixties and seventies at a very high level. Yeah. Um, no, there's some people who don't, there are some people who like, <laughs> right. And in, in it, it all depends on all kinds of things. Like, but that's more about complacency rather than age, which is now kind of finishing this whole thing out, you know, um, I never encourage anybody to be a pure music major, although music minor or double major, absolutely. That's, I think, I mean, I live a patchwork life and I am better for it. My life is richer for having to do many different things. It's not what I would have chosen, but now that I've done it and I, I kind of have multiple things that I do, um, I don't have to lean on music performance to be something that makes me money. And so it's so good. Like when I play and I choose to play, it, it's like, it's really like so rich, but well, um, I was liberating when I got to the point where I didn't have to say yes to everything that changes the whole game. That it sure does. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, okay. And same thing with students, like to turn out, to be able to turn away students, then the students that you do keep, you're really like cultivating something very meaningful instead of yeah. just spending time. Yeah. You know, going back to the thing about, about you never tell people to, be purely a music major i've thought about that question a lot a mm. lot a lot a lot a lot and 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 honestly i i personally cannot come up with with a definitive answer because you know looking back yeah it would have been beneficial for me to have some other profession to also pull from right to be able to to, to lean on um you know for stability and for income and all that on the other hand you know, being forced to be better and better and better because I have to, not only because I want to, but because to survive, you know, um, and to dedicate yourself fully to one thing, you know, I mean, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of mastery, right? Dedicating yourself to, 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 to get to such a high level at one single thing. So I can't, I personally, for, for, for me, I can't say this is the right way or this is the right way you know, yeah, you should be a double major or yeah, you should only be a music major or whatever. Um, I haven't come up with the right answer. Um, 
I don't know what I would do if I were to go back in time and talk to myself, you know, at, at 18 or 19, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I'd, I'd do anything different. Do you know what it is actually? You're right. Because it's not that being a music major is a dangerous thing or a terrible thing to do. I think what it is and what you and I both learned in a very circuitous way is um, you just need to have, you need to be wide open to the whole spectrum of possibilities and learn as much as you can so that you can, so that you can bob and weave and roll and ride on the tides of different things um, that are thrown at you. And lots of people with only music degrees have incredibly fulfilling uh, lives and other things. Like one of my best friends has music degrees in Russian literature, and she is a high paid web developer because she knows how to web develop, but she also plays in a number of regional orchestras and she also consults on linguistic things. So it's like, it's not that you can't be, you shouldn't be a music major, but that you should have um, realistic expectations about what's out there and don't commit yourself to, to, or don't, don't be disappointed if in fact you don't get the orchestral gig that you are absolutely qualified for. It's just, that, that is just sometimes the way it is. Yeah, you don't, you, you only control what you do. You can't control what the rest of the world does, you know, and, and yeah, it's, it's hard. <laughs> Life's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the last thing is, you know, to all the adult learners yeah. um, who I love, because you can really level with them and also give them very specific advice and they'll actually take it because they're just like desperate for like morsels of goodness from people who are actually doing the thing. Um, what are some of the things that you think um, are the hallmarks of people who are successful in their efforts to improve? So we're talking about people of all levels but what kind of gets, what gets the job done? What are some things to either look out for or qualities of practice or frame of mind, all that stuff? First of all, let me say that I have played with some excellent musicians that are not full-time musicians that do something else for mm -hmm. a living. You know, um, I, I've known quite a few of those. So just because you don't do this for the majority of your money doesn't mean you can't be really good at it. That's right. Okay, so that like let's let's get rid of that misnomer, you know. Mm -hmm. Is it harder to be good if you're spending eight hours a day at some other office? Probably, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. There's only 24 hours in a day, right? Um, but it's not impossible. That's is, right. Is my point, right? Um, so, but what 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 do they need to to or what are some of the uh, traits? I would say um, having good guidance, I think, is really important because you don't know what you don't know. Mm. You know, and and I think that first of all, we'll, we'll make your make the, your use of time and energy more efficient, you know. And of course, and if you're an adult learner, you know, you don't have all the time. You don't you go it alone. Yeah, when you're 20 and you're just kind of bouncing around undergrad and all that stuff, and you have no responsibilities, right? Besides yeah. going to English class. <laughs> so so I think having a good a good uh, a good um you know, for a better, lack of a better word, teacher, basically, good guidance mm -hmm. is, is super important. It points you in the right direction, trusting that person, right? And, and trusting that what they're not God, they're, they're a person just like you and me, but, you know, your, your, your guidance counselor, let's say your teacher, <laughs> you know, 
they're probably an expert in what you're trying to do. And so they probably know a lot more about that thing you want to do. So trust them that they are giving you the right thing, but they can also be wrong, right? So multiple mm -hmm. points of views is also important. So, um, you know, if you have main teacher A, I think it's not, it's not bad. You're not cheating on your teacher. If it's like, if occasionally you go get, you know, a lesson with teacher B, you know, once every couple months or whatever. And know? oftentimes they will say things differently and they'll still be trying to get to the same thing. I can't tell you how many times I felt like satisfied after our workshop. And I'm like, ha, that they told me I should do this. And then when I sit home and practice, I'm like, it is the same thing my teacher was trying to tell me. <laughs> it's like totally. <laughs> yep. You, yeah, I've had that experience where, yeah, I tell tell my student, tell my, here, watch this video. And they, they come back, oh my God, did you know this? And it's like, yeah, I've been telling you this for two years, but something just clicked because somebody right. else said it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the, that's super important. Having good guidance, following that guidance, use, and I think, so a difference between when I was an undergrad and now being 40 something and being a student again, the way I use my time is completely different. I get so concentrated. more done now. I get more done now per minute than I did the, so much more. So I think, I think if you've been, if you're an adult now and you've been successful at whatever you're doing or have done, you know, I think you have a big leg up on somebody who's, who's, who's young and hasn't had that life experience, right? You have the life experience of, of being of being efficient with your time of being dedicated of, of of being driven you know and 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 having a goal so um if you don't get it <laughs> that's know? right i think a lot of people sometimes think about music they're like i just want to do this for fun and these are also people who have like high levels of achievement in what they did in their life so there's lots of like doctors lawyers pilots people who are like you know very high level in their lives and then they're like why am i not getting better i'm like i have news for you because it, you can get mediocre but i know you're not satisfied with mediocre right so the thing that got you through flight school the thing that got you your 1500 hours, that's actually the thing that makes Beethoven six possible. Right. So it is fun, but it is actually fun the same way that flying is fun. Right. Right. right you have right, to right. be there. You have to be confident at it. Um, but it is an adult edifying kind of yeah. fun as opposed to like, you know, Disneyland fun. You know uh, what? But I know some people, some hobby musicians, let's call or rather non-professional musicians mm -hmm. that are perfectly content just being like, yeah, this is good enough. And I'm, and I'm happy with it. And if that's, and if you're, and if you truly are happy with that level, more power to you. Man, that would be lovely. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is totally fine too. You yeah. don't have to be the next Yo-Yo Ma to be happy. You'll be that's happy right. with whatever you're happy with, but then don't lament if you're not playing with Boston or LA or New York or whatever, you know, because that's not your goal. So you can't be disappointed if you're not doing it. You that's know, right. Be, not, be honest with yourself. Be honest with your goals, you know, that's right. and, and, and your achievements. Yeah. Cause if you're only willing to put in like fun time effort, that's totally fine. It's just, that's not, not a problem, but then you just consider the company you keep and consider your contribution to the orchestras that you're in. You start having a responsibility to other people. And some people are there for um, more, I don't know, more like heartfelt reasons. <laughs> I think that's, that's really important. 
That's true, but I I I I I I feel that more often than not, um, the chaff and the wheat separate themselves, you know, and each group ensemble, you know, um, kind of attracts the person or the people that are appropriate for that ensemble. And if they're not appropriate, they either move on to something better or they kind of get weeded out and they go to somewhere worse. Generally, mm-hmm. an ensemble has a relative envelope of yeah, a center. Level. Yeah. yeah, a center, yeah. an axis that it can Yeah, and there's a curve. There's somebody who's on top and there's somebody who's at the bottom, but there rarely is an outlier. Rarely. Yeah, no, you're right, actually. You're right about that. See, I'm getting told. I'm getting told by Dennis here, guys. But see, <laughs> I only have a master's. This guy has a doctorate, and I'm getting told by him. That's, you know. Almost. That's, I know. Oh, sorry. He's almost. I don't know the secret handshake yet. <laughs> I don't have the funny hat. No, not yet. But you will. It was the Spartan hat if you're lucky. Oh, man, yeah. Make an entrance. Watch out for low doorways, though. <laughs> All right. So that that's our show for today. Thank you so much for giving us all this time. It's been just so edifying and informative. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk to you again. It's been so long. It's been so long. Uh, maybe we'll have you on again because there's a whole bunch of new stuff to, to talk about. I've got a million different things to ask you about. Yeah. So uh, until then, thank you. Okay, so that's our episode. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, Also, I realized that in some of the other episodes, I had an old email address that I just no longer use. So um, if you want to contact me, uh, you can just do emilywrightcello at gmail.com. Of course, there's emilywright.net. You want to catch up with me on Instagram. It's emilywrightcello. Twitter is emilycello. I'm not there that often. But um, also, I I would encourage all of you to check out my life's work, um, Tamarack Arts. That's tamarackarts.org. Look at the classes, send us an email, uh, sign up for the summer program. Uh, We're enrolling now. Early bird enrollment will be uh, in effect until March 31st, 2022, and then the prices will go up. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.